We're in Isaiah 53 today. Isaiah chapter 53. And this is our this is our fifth week together in Isaiah. Uh, really, it's the end of 52 into 53, but it's our fifth week looking at this servant song together. And it holds so much, and it's it's just a passage that keeps on giving. And I've been thrilled to go through this uh, with you, as I am this morning. And uh, before we get into that, as you've turned your Bibles there, uh, I want to let you know about something we have upcoming in the life of our church that I want to make sure that you're you're thinking about in advance, planning for, uh, because you know is upcoming. So the week leading up to Easter, uh, I want you to to mark this off on your calendars, if, if at all possible. Hopefully I'm catching you soon enough. But the week leading up to Easter, uh, that is the Monday through, uh, we'll just call it Sunday, you know, Easter Sunday morning, uh, we're going to be having a a dedicated time together as a church for prayer uh, and for fasting, and then we're going to have a special day on that Saturday of uh, of a time of fellowship together, uh, what we have called our Easter picnic in the past. And we're going to have that time of celebration together. And then we're going to come for Easter Sunday. And, of course, we're going to have our Easter Sunday celebration uh, together as well. But Monday through Thursday, we're going to have in the evening times dedicated times of prayer where the church facility is going to be open. We're going to have some directed times through the scriptures. And this, this has been called uh, historically Passion Week. And the reason it's called Passion Week is not because it's intended to uh, instill you with some kind of passion yourself, but it comes from a word pasco, which means to suffer. And uh, so it's about the suffering of Christ and his week of suffering. And so we reflect on Passion Week, and as we do, uh, we, we walk through the story of, of what happened that week, and we know what happened on Friday, which we call Good Friday, right? And on Good Friday is, is when uh, Jesus was crucified, and it's a solemn time of remembrance for us, isn't it? And so we're going to be having a Good Friday service as well on Friday evening where we can reflect on all that Christ has done for us. We'll take the Lord's Supper during that service as well. But Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we'll have dedicated times of prayer in the evening time. And then we'll have on Friday our Good Friday service. On Saturday, we're going to have our time of fellowship together as a church. And then on Sunday, we're going to have our Easter morning celebration time together, okay? So there's going to be more details on that upcoming, but I just want to let you know that that's coming so you can kind of be thinking about that and planning for that in advance, okay? All right, so let's look at our text for this morning. This is Isaiah 53. Our text today is verses 7 through 9. And it says... He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land for the, of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Okay, so that's our text for this morning. Let's begin looking at verse 7, okay? I want to tell you my plan for this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the text together. We're going to see what all these three verses have to tell us. Uh, what we're going to notice is that this is really, uh, if, if you're looking back at, at verses uh, 3, 4, and 5, uh, or excuse me, verses 4, 5, and 6, then this is what Jimmy was preaching on last week, and really it was about all the events that, that the things that happened to him. So if you look at that, he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, he was pierced, he was crushed, uh, there were wounds, and so you get the idea that things are happening to him, right? So all these things are happening to him, and then in verse 7, it changes more to reflect on his character and what he was, what was happening with him internally, okay? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at all that verses 7, 8, and 9 have for us as they're found in the text, and we'll kind of just explain those. 
And then what we're going to do is we're going to turn to the New Testament together, and we're going to look at the fulfillment of these things, because there are some specifics, there's some very specific details about how these things are fulfilled in Christ and his work. And then what we're going to do is we're going to see how the New Testament authors then took these fulfillments, and they turned them around, and they said, now, in light of who Christ is and what he did, here is how you should live from this text, which is pretty amazing, isn't it? You read this text about the servant that was to come, and then the New Testament authors, they take that and they say, this was him, definitely, here's how it happened, and then they say, now, in light of all that, let's live our lives in this way. So that's where we're going to end, okay? So let's just look at the text together first, and then we're going to go all the way there together. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. All right, we can stop right there. Uh, this word oppression carries a pretty big weight with it, especially at this time in our culture, doesn't it? Uh, but let's just define what the word actually means here, okay? What does it actually mean to be oppressed in this particular circumstance? Uh, well, the word is used actually back in the Exodus story. And I'm just going to read Exodus 111. You're going to, you're immediately, your minds are going to go back to this story. I know that, it, I know they will. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities. You remember this? So this is about the Jewish people uh, in Egypt, and they're held captive. And Pharaoh then set over all the Jewish people taskmasters to afflict them. The word afflict is not the word for oppressed. You thought it was probably, right? Actually, it's the word taskmaster is the same word used here for oppressed. It is one who drives another. It is one who drives another person so as to get the proper payment out of them. Or you think of it as an animal. You drive the animal to get all the work possible out of them that you possibly can, right? Something like that. And so in this way, it's translated as oppressed. Does that kind of make sense? And so it's something that you drive to get as much out of it as possible. And in this way, the servant was oppressed. He was driven. But then it also says, and he was afflicted. Afflicted. Affliction means, in this context, we're going we're gonna to go back, because the same word is used again in that same Exodus account. And I think that's not coincidence. I think our minds are meant to go back to Egyptian captivity where the servant of God, who was Israel, right, was held captive and they were being oppressed and afflicted. And now we have the servant of God who is now oppressed himself and afflicted. See the parallel there? But how is the word used? In Exodus 10.3, it's used. So Moses and Aaron, they went to Pharaoh. They said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. So the word afflict is in here, but it's translated in this particular circumstance as humble. So to afflict is to drive someone low, to push them down where they should be. Okay? Really probably meaning by force, wouldn't you guess? Isn't that the context that we feel? So they are oppressed, they're worked to get something out of them, and then they're pressed down to the ground to force them to be humbled, because that's where you belong. Get the idea? And this is how he was treated. By people. By people. Who was he again? He was God in the flesh, right? And people came to him and oppressed him and afflicted him. God! That's unbelievable, isn't it? That people treated our God in such a way, and yet nothing happened. Couldn't he, in a moment, in an instant, in the blink of an eye, put all his enemies in their proper place? He could have just said a word, and all of it would have been gone. So how will the righteous servant of God react when he is treated like this? That's the big question. That's where we're supposed to go with this, is that, okay, he was, he was oppressed, 
He was afflicted. He was pushed down. He was worked. But that's God in the flesh. So now we're wondering, okay, he's going to do something. You don't treat God like that, and he just takes it. Or does he? So then we look at the next part of the verse. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Unbelievable, isn't it? That our God went through such a thing, and he said nothing about it. He took it. So the general idea is, I think, just immediately obvious to us what's happening here. But if I could say it maybe a couple of different ways, he, he didn't present his case toward his oppressors to say to them, listen, you don't understand who I am. I am perfectly righteous. There is no reason for you to oppress me. Or he says, let's evaluate my life against your life. Let's look at me. Let's look at you. Let's see if your oppression against me is warranted. Let me present my case to you, right? He didn't do that. He also did not argue with them. He also did not protest. He also did not seek to take justice in his, to his own hands by force. Do you see all of that happening right there? So there are people set against the servant of God who we know is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And here you have this group of people who surround him, oppress him, afflict him, and he, in response, God, he said nothing. He did not deserve it, did he? But he didn't say that he didn't deserve it. He didn't fight back against it. But it says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. We know this. We know this, right? We, we all know that symbolism, that, that imagery is in our minds. Like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. But what Isaiah is telling us here is, let me tell you, how it is or why it is that he did not open his mouth against his oppressors. Let me tell you why. It's like this. It's just like a sheep or a lamb led to the slaughter. It's just like a sheep before its shearers. So what does that mean? Does it just simply mean that he said nothing? Well, I think there's a little bit more to it. Uh, Jeremiah uses this same imagery in Jeremiah eleven nineteen, And you got to just remember that when we're referencing one prophet to another, especially prophets who are prophesying to the same group of people concerning the same activities. And also, as prophetic literature uses similar types of, of ways of speaking, like symbolism, then we can say, listen, the way he was using this, the way it was understood at the time, is a similar way to how Isaiah would have understood this imagery. Does that make sense? So in, in Jeremiah eleven nineteen, let me just read for you what he says. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me they devised schemes. So he's, he's saying these in parallel, and he's telling us, here's the imagery I want you to get, and here's what it means. I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter, which we have in Isaiah, but what we don't have in Isaiah is, is a specific uh, definition given basically of what he means by that but Jeremiah does and what Jeremiah says is and here's how it's like that I didn't know that it was against me they devised schemes that's what Jeremiah says so here's the picture we have a little lamb that's being led to the slaughter does the lamb know that it's being led to the slaughter no so how could it object it, it didn't object it's not going to object, right? So in the same way, he says, I, Jeremiah, was like a gentle lamb being led to the slaughter. And what he's saying is, I didn't know that these people were devising schemes against me. So I didn't know, therefore I didn't say anything. Is that also true, hang on, of Jesus? That's confusing, is it not? So is it the same way? So he's saying, like a lamb who doesn't know anything, so was the servant of God who doesn't know anything. They didn't know that there was evil being devised against him, or he didn't know, excuse me, that there was evil being devised against him. So he didn't say anything. He didn't know. Is that right? 
No, I don't think that's right. I think here's exactly what it's saying. He did know, and still he said nothing. That's what's being said. Like a lamb being led to the slaughter, who doesn't know and therefore doesn't object, he was just like that, but yet he did know. He knew exactly what was happening, and still he was like a lamb that didn't know. Does that make sense? That's how he was. And in the same way, a, shear, or a, a sheep before it shears. It, it, it's, it's like, no big deal. I, what, what am I objecting to here? Silent. Says nothing. So let's look at verse 8 because it continues. Okay, so we have this picture of the servant of God who it's really difficult for us not to immediately transport ourselves to the New Testament and think about the gospel accounts here. I, I know that it's difficult, but if we're just taking this for what it says here, which um, we can do, but I, it, just, just think about this on its own terms, and then we're going to, of course, we're going to work in what we know specifically from the gospel accounts and what happened to Jesus, but let's just take it on its own terms for a second. It says in verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. So let's just think about what that might mean before we, we pull in what we know that it does mean, okay? By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Uh, let's, let's just take that just for a second. Oppression and judgment. Now, what can be confusing about our English translations is that sometimes words are translated the same way, even though it's a completely different word with different connotations. So like, for example, in verse 7, the word oppressed is there. And then again, you have oppression in verse 8, but they're completely different words. Uh, but in English, they're kind of, they're, or the ESV at least, you think that the same concept's being said again, but it's not. It's actually different. Uh, oppression here, it, it's actually, it, it, the word is used for a woman who is barren because her womb is constricted. That's how the word is used. Um, and what it means is it's restricted by force, which means it's coerced. It's forced into a particular position that it can't move from. You're coerced. You're forced, right? So we get the idea of oppression, but what it really means is that he is taken by force and coerced to do something that he doesn't want to do. That's what the word means here. So he's being coerced, forced, restricted by force, and then also, uh, it, it's not only by oppression that he's taken away, but also by judgment that he's taken away. So by, by oppression, by coercion, by force, he's taken away. But then also, he's taken away by judgment. And what does the word judgment mean? This is a very common word used in our Old Testament. And uh, it's translated judgment a lot. Um, but it's also translated justice. And this is not really foreign to the idea of the servant because over in Isaiah 42, listen to what it says about the servant. Remember that Isaiah 42, uh, at, at least the beginning part of that chapter, is also about the servant. It's a, a servant song as well. So here's what it says. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. You hear that? He will bring forth justice to the nations. And it's the same thing that's said here about judgment. But, so here's kind of a, a it's kind of a flip-flop scenario. The servant was promised to bring justice, and here he is being ill-treated in an unjust manner because someone has judged him and coerced him and taken him away. But as we're going to read, he's innocent. So there's injustice at work. Do you see it? So it, it, there's, an, there's an irony about the servant here, who he was to be the one to establish justice in all the earth. But here he comes, and instead of establishing justice in all the earth, he himself falls prey to the weak, wicked, evil system of governance that's happening, and he himself is judged. And when they judge him, they coerce him, and they lead him away. They take him away by force sad situation. Taken away where? Where'd they take him? Well, let's keep going here. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And then it says, and as for his generation, understand that to mean 
those who were alive at the time when all these things actually happened, right? Who among them considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? That's a question. Who among those who were alive at that time considered that this man was stricken, he was cut out of the cut off of the land of the living that is he died for the transgression of my people who living at that time considered that this is why he died just let, leave that question lingering there for a minute because we all tend to think that well if we were there at that time we would have seen and we would have known and we would have been on Jesus' side and we would have not been like Peter who said, no, I don't know the guy. We wouldn't have been like that. We wouldn't have, have judged him like the, like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and telling him that he was wicked and ultimately that he was a blasphemer and that he deserved to die for the things that he was saying. Never in a million years would that have been us. But I believe that obviously unless the Lord chose to reveal his arm to you, then you, that's exactly who you would have been. You would have been those who were against him, not for him. Unless the Lord chose to reveal his arm to you and show you, here's what I'm doing. Here's who he is. So, who among them then considered this man was oppressed and afflicted and coerced and judged and taken to his death for the sake of the transgressions of my people, of all the people who ever lived on the face of the planet, or for his people? Because that's two different groups of people. Is it not? For the sake of my people, I did this. And then it continues. So he's dead. And then in verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So here's what they do with his body. They consider that this man who died, they consider him to be wicked. And we have to, uh, we have to understand the wicked and the rich man go together because it's a parallel concept, just like the second half is also a parallel concept, right? So wicked man, rich man, take that, and violence and deceit in the next part. So we have two parallel concepts happening here. So you might think wicked man with a rich man, so like a bad man and a good man? No, a bad man and a bad man. That's what it means. That means the wicked and the bad. It's just a, a way, a full way of saying he was with the guys who were bad. They took him, they took his body, and they put him where the bad guys go, right? Where the wicked people go, where the sinners go. They took him and said, well, he died just like they died. He's good for nothing. He deserved to die. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Although he did not deserve a sinner's death, it's exactly what he received. Okay, so there's the whole picture of the three verses. Is that a pretty vivid picture for us to hold on to? What a sad scenario. So what I'd, what I'd like to do is then now look at a couple of places in our New Testament where they actually quote from Isaiah 50, our, our verses that we're looking at, and what they do is they confirm to us, first of all, that yes, this person is Jesus, but additionally, they show us the way that Jesus fulfilled these things perfectly, and then, like I said, they also, they take these things and they say, now, given that Jesus was this servant, and given that he fulfilled them in this particular way, here's now how you must model your life after the one who died in your place. Okay, so let's look at, we don't have too many here, so let's, let's look, uh, first of all, turn with me to Matthew 27, and we'll begin in verse 38.
I didn't want to pass over this by, uh, uh, by not mentioning it. So you're turning to Matthew 27. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when I preached on uh, baptism from the Ethiopian eunuch story? Remember that? Uh, the verses that we're reading today, thank you so much. The verses that we're reading today are the verses that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when Philip came. And he said, let me ask you, who is he talking about, himself or someone else? And from this scripture, he shared with him the good news of Jesus Christ, right? It's, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Okay, so Matthew 27, beginning in verse 38. We'll just get right to it. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, they wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they mocked him saying, he saved others. Can he save himself? He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. I mean, can you imagine that scenario? Can you imagine being one of the robbers on the cross, one of the criminals on the cross, being crucified next to Jesus? You're, you're there suffering in agony and dying, and yet you still have the energy within you to ridicule the Son of God. Can you imagine that? And yet we have people living their life, suffering torment and agony in this life with no hope, and there they are, reviling the Son of God when they hear the good news that comes to them. They want nothing to do with it, and it's a mockery. They make a mockery out of it. They want nothing to do with it. So although that's hard to believe, yet we see it every day. People who want nothing to do with this, it's a joke to them, and there they are suffering internally because they have no hope. And so we pray for them that the Lord would reveal his arm to them and that they might see can't you see it? Can't you see who this man is? He is so much more than a man. And so, part of the significance I want us to see here is that who was crucified with him? Two robbers. Not one, but two. And so, they made his grave with the wicked, as we find back in Isaiah 53. Now, it's very significant that the word wicked there is plural. Not a wicked man, but the wicked, plural. So they killed him along with other ones who were wicked, which is exactly the fulfillment we have here when Jesus died with two men who were wicked. Do you see it? Okay, so this is the fulfillment of the suffering servant on the cross when they made his grave with the wicked ones. This is it, when he was crucified with robbers next to him. Next, uh, fast forward in Matthew 27 to verse 57. So this is still that time when Jesus is on the cross. And it says, and when evening came, there was what? Anybody turn there? There's a rich man. A ri rich men? Multiple rich men? Or a rich man? Now there were wicked ones, plural. And just like it says, just like it says in Isaiah 53, a rich man. And here is that rich man. We find him right here. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. We know him. He was a disciple of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered uh, it to be given to him because he asked for the body of Jesus. Okay, and so he took him and he laid him in a tomb. Now, while we see the language used by Isaiah in verse 53 that he was uh, uh, laid with the wicked and the rich man, what we find is that we see the true fulfillment and the clear vision of what actually was being said. There was an actual literal fulfillment of these things, right? Is that he was crucified with two wicked people and then, and then there was a, a rich man who gave him his own tomb. 
new tomb. And it was a rich man, so it was probably nice. And he said, but my Lord deserves this more than me, although he wouldn't need it for very long. Next, like a sheep, he was silent, right? Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears. Let's just talk about that for a moment and turn back just a chapter to Matthew 26. So here we have more of the story, and now what we have is some of the conversation and situation that was leading up to his crucifixion and what all was taking place right there. So Matthew 26, beginning in 57. Then those who had seized Jesus and led him to Caiaphas, what's that sound like actually already? That he was taken away by force. Did you hear that? And they led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following at a distance. And as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards uh, to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. What did they need in order to put him to death? Uh, some kind of false testimony against him to judge him by. You understand? This is all legal language here, just as it is in Isaiah 53. They took him to the high council and to get him officially condemned that he might be crucified and killed. But what they had to have was evidence, right? We need evidence against this guy. We can't find much. So they were seeking what? False testimony. That still happens today, doesn't it? You seek false testimony because you want something bad to happen to someone else for whatever reason. For whatever reason. What was the reason? Why did they hate him so much? They were seeking to accuse him so that they might put him to death. They just didn't want him to live anymore. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. There just wasn't the right one to use for the circumstance. And at last, two came forward and said, Well, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and he said, Aha! Something I can use. That's what I'm talking about. I don't know if these guys got rewarded or what, but he said, that's the kind of testimony we need. I think that's going to work. But it says, the high priest stood up. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But what happened? Jesus remained silent. So they brought accusation against him as they were judging him. This man said, destroy the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. You say, okay, there we go. Listen to this claim that they just made against you. They're judging you here. Hey, they're judging you. They're oppressing you. What are you going to say? What do you have to say? Say something for yourself. Defend yourself. And he says, nothing. Nothing. He said nothing. Nothing in response. He remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, why did they want, they didn't want to know if he was truly the Messiah, did they? No, they wanted the words from, they wanted that verbal confession so that they could kill him. That's why they wanted him to say it. So Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, what's that a reference to? Anybody know? Last week, Psalm 110.1. That's what that's a reference to. He then will be raised, and he will be seated at the right hand of the Father. And then the priest, he tore his robes, and he said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard it. What is your judgment? They answered, What is your judgment? They said, and they answered, he deserves death. And so they spit in his face and they struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it who struck you? And so they afflicted him. They oppressed him. They judged him. They took him away by force. And they killed him. And they made his grave with the wicked. 
all the way back up to 27 verses 11 through 14. Matthew 27 verses 11 through 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when, the, when he was accused by the chief priest and elders, he gave no answer. You see that? When he was accused by the chief priest and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So he knew that what they were judging him with was, in a sense, false testimony, although what they were saying ultimately in the end was true, but the, the, the accusation was false that he was blaspheming, right? So he, he could have said, I, I am not, actually, and he could have argued with them. He could have made his case to them. He could have, in a second, made them all go away, but he didn't. So it's unlike a sheep in that he knew what was coming. But it was like a sheep in the sense that he still said nothing. He didn't answer his accusers as if he didn't know what was coming. So he remained silent because, here's the reality, he knew what he must do. He must see this through. There's no other way. He had prayed, hadn't, hadn't he? Remember in the garden of Gethsemane? Lord, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but yet not my will, but yours be done. And that didn't happen, did it? And so here Jesus finds himself accused, and now they say blasphemer, and they say, okay, what does he deserve? Death. And so he said, here it is then from my God, from my Father. I will not object because this is my Father's will for me. So he took it. And so he suffered, the suffering servant, because his suffering was the only way to make atonement for the sins of the people of God. But who among them considered that he was stricken and afflicted and that he died for the transgressions of the people of God? So the character of Christ as our suffering servant is not only productive, that it, it produces something for us. What did it produce for us? It produced our salvation. So we see all of this and we understand, okay, I get it. I get the storyline. I get what Christ did. I get that he's the suffering servant in my place and all that is so much to process. That's true. It is productive for us in the sense that we understand what Christ has done, but you know there's more to it than that. Now, it's, it's, it's true that we shouldn't simply read Old Testament stories and derive from the moral character concepts. You know, be more like David, be more like Ruth, be more like whatever, whatever, whatever. And, and it's not that we're just pulling moral concepts out and because every story is about you, after all. The story is about the suffering servant, actually. It's not about you. But what we can do, and what the New Testament authors did by implication of this truth, is they said, now, in light of who the suffering servant was and is, here is how we should take that reality and apply it to our lives as we live as his servants. And so that's where we turn next. And who does it? But <laughs> it's ironic, the person who tells us how to live. It's Peter. Isn't that ironic? 1 Peter chapter 2. So turn there with me. This will be... Uh, the second to last text I take you to this morning. So this is 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 25. So I hope you followed me this morning. We looked at our text. We saw what was there, the description of the suffering servant and his character, his internal turmoil, and then we are now looking at the fulfillment of how those things took place in the gospel account. That's what Matthew was for. And then now what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we get the whole picture of what happened. And now, what do I do with that information? I think there's already a lot of implications, application from that about how we ought to consider our Savior. But there is actually more. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what Peter says. First Peter 2, 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with, with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. 
I'll, I'll just mention here, um, the word unjust there is in, in Greek skoliois, and you know that word kind of because that's where you get the word scoliosis, which means crooked. Uh, they are crooked. They are unjust. They are wicked. They're not right. They're not straight, right? So this is how you ought to behave between those who are good and those who are not good. Those who do things right and those who do things very badly in a crooked, bad way. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it and you endure? But if you do good and suffer, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, he's about to, he, he's about to uh, reference Isaiah 53. All right? So I just want you to know in this context where he's deriving this biblical principle from. He's taking it from actually witnessing the life of the suffering servant, but more than just quoting something Jesus said while he was here and while he was learning from Jesus, where does Peter decide to go to teach? He goes all the way back to Isaiah. He goes all the way back to Isaiah 53, and he says, in light of Christ and all he suffered, listen to how you must now live. He suffered unjustly, even though he did only what was right. And what Peter's saying here is, you must endure. But now he says, but if you suffer because you did something bad, that's not what I'm talking about, okay? You do something bad and you reap the consequences and you suffer for it. Listen, that's not wasted because God is in all things, but that's not what I'm referencing in this moment. What I'm referencing in this moment is when you suffer for doing what is right. Because he says, I know someone who suffered for doing what was right. I know someone who only ever did what was right, and yet he lived a life of suffering. And he says, now, let me tell you more about that. And that's where he goes next. For to this you have been called. Not to this you might have to deal with, no. To this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. And the next words are very important, very important. Leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Christ, the suffering servant, lived as a suffering servant of God to show you how to live. Now, some people's gospel presentation stops right there. Now, did Jesus teach us how to live rightly? Yes. Is that all he did? Definitely not. Jesus did not come to just show us the right way to live. Jesus came to be the suffering servant of God that he might die for the sins of his people. Because if he didn't, we would have to die for our own sins and take the wrath of God. So his work is productive, but his work and his person is also instructive. You see two sides to this. Yes, he did something that produced something. It's productive. But yes, he also lived in a way that we should live like him. Both are true. Let's not make one the priority actually of the other. However, if you don't know that Christ died for you and the work that he produced, that means that you don't believe the gospel. If you don't believe the gospel, you don't have the spirit of God inside of you. If you don't have the spirit of God inside of you, all this other stuff doesn't even make sense. So one necessarily flows out of the other. So this sermon is certainly not become more like Jesus and God will like you better. The point is, know who the suffering servant is, Jesus Christ, and all that he did for you on the cross now that you have him, now that you have salvation, and you can't ever add to it. You have everything. You have everything. But now that you have it out of a willing heart, like a servant, like the servant that he was, live your life in obedience to him. Live your life as a servant of God. And here's one big thing that we must come to terms with. As you try to live as a servant of God in this world, trying to do what is right, you must know what's coming your way. You must know you're going to suffer. And when you suffer, you have someone to look to as an example of how to deal with that. Jesus Christ himself. So, 
To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And so now it's described. He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. What's that? That's a direct quotation from Isaiah 53. He was reviled. He did not revile in return. And we suffered. He did not threaten. But instead, here's what he did. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when you find yourself in situations where you are attempting to do what is right, what you read in the scriptures, what we know, what we attempt to do as a community, this is why it's so important for us to draw strength from each other. Because we're all attempting to live for God out in this world, right? And it's hard, is it not? And so we come together for strength. There is strength when we come together because we're all trying to do the same thing. But when we go out into this world to do it, we suffer. And as you suffer, here's what we must know. When he suffered for righteousness' sake, he did not revile in return when he was reviled. And when he suffered, he didn't threaten. In other words, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You say bad things about me, I'm going to say bad things about you. He didn't do any of that. And why does it need to say this, by the way? Because is this not what we want to do? You say something bad about me, I'm saying something worse about you. You do something bad to me, I'm going to do something worse to you. You can't do that to me. You know who I am? You must not know who I am. You're treating me like that. Talk to me like that. Now, if we have that instinct that is sinful, and we must know that, because Christ left us an example of how to handle those situations, right? How do you handle those situations? When you are threatened, you do not throw threats back. Now, this is for suffering for righteousness' sake. Understand, this is not a catch-all for all things in life. This is when you suffer for righteousness' sake. So, he continued in that moment, knowing that he was being judged. Because, you know, when you suffer, you're being judged. You're being judged by an outsider. You're being judged about what you're doing, saying that what you're doing is actually wrong. And they're threatening you about that. They're reviling you. That means they're putting you down. They're saying bad things about you. But we have to know in that situation, that's not how Christ handled himself. We must act as he acted. That's what we should do as his servants. He, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Because he was not being judged justly in that moment. But there is one who does judge justly, right? And so we have to say, although you are judging me right now, and you are not judging me according to righteousness... There is one who does judge according to righteousness, and I know that he's going to judge everyone when the time is right, and I know that it will be just, it will be right when that judgment comes. So everyone has what's coming to them. Leave it to the justice of God. Leave it to the wrath of God. He's going to take care of it. It's not for you to do. And then it says... He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So he produced salvation for us, gave us his spirit that we might be free from sin. This is what Wednesday nights have been on, right? If you've not been here. By the way, quick plug about Wednesday nights. If all you know of Fellowship Renewed Church is our Sunday morning gathering, you're missing out on so much. And I just want to encourage you right now in this moment while I can. Please, be part of the life of this church as much as you can. Be part of the fellowship of God as much as you can. Does it take effort? Yes. Does sometimes it get in the way of your busy schedule? Yes. How many days do you have left on this planet? I don't know. You don't know. Don't you want to make the best of them? By the way, our services together, it's not about, well, I don't get much out of Wednesday nights, but the frank answer to that is I don't know that anybody asked you <laughs> what you were going to get out of it. I, are you coming here just for yourself? So I just want you to think about it in terms of maybe I need to come because I need to speak truth into other people's lives and to learn about their lives and to live life with them that I might pray for them, encourage them, to know them. So try thinking about our gatherings in terms of I'm not just here for myself to get from the church, although that does happen. I'm here to give of myself to the church, and what the church is, by the way, is the people, not the organization. Okay? We are here to give 
to people. And if we're all giving, guess what we're all also, we're also receiving. Yeah. Okay? So one last place we're going to go this morning. And uh, it's just a, a quick passage in Philippians chapter 2. Okay, so do you see how Peter took that and he said, now in light of what Christ suffered as the suffering servant, I want you to take that and I want you to understand how to handle yourself in this world when you suffer. When you suffer for righteousness sake, you need to be concerned with how you're responding to that internally. And you need to make sure that as Christ has set you free from sin, that you actually die to sin by the Spirit and that you live to righteousness. And part of that is learning how to handle opposition and suffering in this world. So last place we're going is Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And it's a passage that you should know. If you've been with us for any amount of time, we spent a great deal of time in the book of Philippians, which is wonderful. Let's just be reminded of this one section together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, it's yours already. You just need to lay hold of it. It is yours. It's yours. Just lay hold of it. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself, and he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him. What's that a reference to? Psalm 110. That must happen and bestowed on him that is the name above every other name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is literally the quotation says Yahweh to the glory of God the Father he is that Lord that Lord spoken of in our Old Testament that is him now if he, God of all creation, humbled himself, what does that say of us? If he could humble himself to be a servant for our sake, what does that mean for us? We do carry around with us a great deal of pride, don't we? And I think it's time that we consider how we can let that amount of pride go. We need to let it go. We need to consider ourselves as servants to one another, as servants to God. And if we are servants, that means that we are not our own master, right? That we belong to another. So our life is not ours to live however we want. But we live our lives in service to another. And a big part of this is humbling ourselves and accepting the lot that God has given us in this life as we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. But it takes humility. And if our Savior did it, he has left us something behind to model. He said, have this mind among yourselves, which is already yours in Christ Jesus. He was humble, you be humble, right? He didn't threaten when he suffered, you don't threaten when you suffer. Be like Christ, now, being like Christ doesn't make you Christ. You can never produce your own salvation. I want to make that very clear. This is not about being good so that you can earn favor with God. No, that's not it. This is about those who already have favor with God through what Christ has done. Now, being set free from sin by the Spirit, you can now live to righteousness. And part of that is humbling yourself and understanding how we must suffer in this life. Okay? Is that all that makes sense? This passage has so much for us. And as we're considering uh, what Christ has done, I, I just want to, cons to continue thinking about that. And we're going to have the Lord's Supper this morning. And so I do want to read uh, Paul's instructions to the church as we prepare for this meal together. So look at 1 Corinthians 11. And I'm going to read Paul's instructions to the Corinthian church, which was instruction to all the churches on how we should have this meal together and what it might mean. I hope that it might have a little bit more significance having focused in so much on what Christ did for us. Focusing in so much on what he experienced. It helps us to understand. You ever heard that old phrase, you know, put yourself in someone else's shoes, put yourself in their shoes? 
I hope that this has helped to do that, that we have almost put ourselves in the place of all that he would have experienced, but still we can't because he was God in the flesh. So we can't, but we can somewhat know and we can somewhat better understand. So then there was this meal that Jesus on the night he was, in the day that he was about to be betrayed and coerced, let off to be judged and killed, he said to his disciples, now, I, I want to have a meal together and it's symbolic and I want you to understand what it means so that the churches throughout the ages might get together and have this meal together and that they might remember, that they might proclaim and that they might reflect on themselves as they do it. That's what this is all about. So 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, okay? So let's look at it. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, when you gather together as a church, it's not for the better, but for the worse. So that implies that when the church gathers together as a people, it should be for our benefit. And what makes it not for our benefit? When people elevate themselves over other people, when there is pride and not humility in the church. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. We shouldn't have divisions among us. And I believe it in part, but he says there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine might, among you might be recognized. So in this gathering, there were actually those who genuinely belonged to Christ. And there were actually some who were coming and gathering who did not belong to Christ. And so he says in this way, there actually are divisions among you, but the issue is that there is sin in your midst. But he says, anyway, here's what's happening when you gather for this meal. In eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, another goes hungry, another gets drunk. He says, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? That's not the point of this meal. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I sh say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so now he, he tells us what was wrong, and now he's going to tell us, here's how you properly have this meal as a church. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and he said, now this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We'll pause right there for a second. The first instruction we have is to have this meal in remembrance of all that Christ has done. That's what he just said. So that's our backward looking. We look backward at what God did through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay? Next, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the next part. That's forward-looking. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, so that's we're looking forward at what God will do in Christ. Do you know that Christ Jesus is ascended at the right hand of the Father? All his enemies are being made his footstool right now, and then the end is coming when he is going to consummate his kingdom completely, and we are going to live with him in eternity, in bliss, in glory with him. That is coming. That time is coming, and we must remember that that time is coming if we're going to have the Lord's Supper together because although he died, guess what? He's coming back because he didn't stay dead. Okay, so finally, it says, and this is actually where the bulk of the time goes. Uh, he, he said all of this in these few verses, but now a, a, a bulk of the text actually is about this final instruction because it's about the here and now. It says, For as often as you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, this is not judgment from the people. This is judgment from God, which is a righteous judgment. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined that we might not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. 
so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And then he says, and I have more stuff to tell you, but I'll tell you face to face. So what is all this saying? This final instruction here about looking inward is really about a self-judgment. If you judged yourself truly, you would not be judged. So what it's saying here is, you must, in light of all that Christ has done, judge yourself. Now, if you judge yourself, but you don't judge yourself strictly, and you, you judge yourself like, oh, I mean, I, I had a pretty good week. I mean, I don't know. No complaints. You know what I mean? Uh, I, you know, yeah, I, you know, it wasn't my greatest week, but altogether, you know, A. You know, maybe not A+, plus, but I give myself an A. And you judge yourself, and you say, I'm actually doing pretty good. Uh, this kind of light, surface-level judgment is not what we're talking about. And when you judge yourself in that way, and you come and you eat, you make a mockery of what Christ did. You think that's what Christ died for? For you and your okay week? Or did he die for sin? Which you live in. Which is, has its remains in you. And when we judge ourselves, we're looking for all those spots of darkness and those remains of sin that are still clinging to us. That although we have the Spirit and we have been reborn, we have died to sin, we are living to righteousness, it's not full yet. It's not complete. There are specks of sin in all of us, and you are to judge yourself, filter yourself, and say, where are those places of darkness? To acknowledge them and to acknowledge them to God is to judge yourself truly. Because if you don't judge yourself truly and you eat, then God is going to show you where your sin is. And this is the discipline of God for making a mockery of your Savior and what he has done. And so he says, oh, you think you're doing okay. Let me discipline you so that you might see that you're not doing okay. That's exactly what the text says. Because these people did not examine themselves properly. They came and they ate and they drank and some of them became weak, some of them ill, and some died. And then it says, but this is the discipline of God that you might not be condemned along with the world. So is this meal important? It seems like it, doesn't it? This is a big deal. But then, so it, so it says in the text then, so examine yourself, judge yourself truly, acknowledge where your sin is, and then confess it to the Lord. Say, call sin, sin. Say, the Lord, I, I acknowledge this in my life. I admit that it's sin and repent of it. Say, I'm, I'm done with that. Forgive me for that. I'm done with it. And you move forward in the glory of God. This is what it's about. This time is not about wallowing in how sinful you are and remaining in that condition. You understand? This is not a time for you saying, man, I don't want to examine myself because uh, I'm afraid of what's in there. I don't want to look in the box. I don't want to see all the nastiness that's inside. Leave me alone with that. But what the scriptures call us to is to open up all those things that are going on inside and to actually admit that they're there. Confess them to God and guess what you will find? Forgiveness and grace and mercy and love through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's not about what you've done. It's all about who he was and what he did for you. So this is a joyous time. Although it hurts to look inside, this is a joyous time for us to reflect, okay? So the call to us then is three, three things. Backward, forward, inward looking. This is what we must do. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a song for you today. Um, and uh, I am going to have the words on the screen. You can, you can sing the song with me. You can look at it, reflect on it with me. You can sit and pray if you want. Uh, whatever this time means for you is what's right. If you need more time, then you take that time. I'm going to sing a song for you. We're going to have the Lord's Supper anytime during that. And then we're going to sing another song together as a church before we leave for the day. And so anytime, anytime during this period is right for you to come. Now, we do have two tables this morning to hopefully alleviate a little bit of the, uh, you know, the traffic jams we've been having. So I don't know how that's going to work out. You guys are intelligent. Work out how all this, you know, goes together. But uh, so two different tables. So try to divide ourselves up evenly between these two. And any time, any time during these next two songs, 
um, I want you to come and, and take the Lord's Supper, okay? So the call, I just want to encourage you again. The call is for believers, those who have Christ, not to sit, but to confess and then joyfully come and celebrate what God has done for you in the Lord's Supper, okay? So the call is to come and take the Lord's Supper. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, our Savior. He is good. He is righteous. The world did not see him as that, but in fact, they saw him as among the wicked and the sinful. Lord, I pray that our eyes might just continually be open to who our great Savior is in Christ Jesus. Help us to see him clearly. And as we see him, I pray that we would see our own lives in light of that reality. Our lives have not yet met the mark. We need to humble ourselves before you. We need to judge ourselves truly. We need to put away the pride that's in our lives. We need to submit our lives completely as servants for your sake. Help us to do that. I pray now that as we take the Lord's Supper that it's pleasing to you. I pray that we would properly examine ourselves and remember what you have done and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is what we want to do together as a church. So we pray now that this time is glorifying to you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.